I'm going to open us up with prayer. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. It is a hot one again, but it is Texas and it's summer and it gets hot here and, you know, well, it just kind of wears us down. But we appreciate the glories of your creation. We appreciate that we can come together in this way to study your word. <coughs> and as we make our way through these stories in the book of Samuel, please help us to kind of put the pieces together so that we can see that in this deeply important period in the story of your people and your your life with these people that um, it that we can begin to make sense of it and see how it shapes even the mission and life of Jesus all this we pray in Jesus' name Amen <coughs> okay that sounds really good for all those streamers out there you're welcome <laughs> Just, just keep the mute button handy is what I would say. I don't have a mute button right here, so you're kind of stuck. But maybe we'll get calmed down. Susan gave me a good lozenge to use. I'm going to the doctor this afternoon. Finally. <sighs> what happened to old-fashioned colds? You know, they come, they, they're sort of coming on for a few days. They're with you for a few days. And then they go away in a few days. You know, so you know, they're kind of gone. Allergies. Allergies. See, that's what I think my yeah, problem is. I think, it is too. I think it's allergies are yeah. compounding this problem. Oh, I'd be back there in a heartbeat, though. <laughs> if it's Norway that does this to me, I'm, I'll, I'll take it. So, anyway, yeah. <coughs> what? Behind, yeah, us. behind us, that whole hospital ward on the road behind us. They did not help, I don't think. But here we are, we're glad to be doing this. First of all, before we plunge back into the story of David and Ishbosheth, is there anything y'all would like to talk about? Anything at all? Why is there so much killing? How many humans were killed by other humans in the course of the last 100 years of human history. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. But, don't there many go around by the That's why the number, so Andy's saying, why is there so much killing? I point out that there's always, humans have always killed and there weren't large numbers. There wasn't industrial killing like, you know, humans were able to do after the Industrial Revolution when we could literally kill millions of humans, other humans. But there is a lot. And why is there a lot? Why is it that the people of God are falling into civil war? The deep fundamental answer, which, see, we can answer that question. Other people in this world may not be able to answer that question. They struggle for an answer. I don't struggle for an answer to that. It doesn't surprise me because the Bible teaches me that there is a deep darkness in the human heart born out of our rebellion against God and it is a darkness that we cannot escape 
that we cannot fix and from which we need a rescuer, a savior. At the highest level, that is the biblical story. That we are, that's why we are doomed without God. In the ancient world, yes, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, there was a practice called the band, which we could talk. But let's talk about that on another occasion. Okay. In fact, Don, email me. I want to send you a book, um, or I won't send it to you. You you may purchase it yourself. <laughs> My name made Scott for nothing, baby. Okay, by John Walton, that that talks about. The conquest and the ban, and um, you know, in simple, you know, one piece of that, one little piece of that. God, God said to His people, "You cannot keep anything from war, not livestock, not homes, not slaves, which was the practice. Nothing. You can't keep anything." Which means what? You can't in any way profit from warfare. How many wars would be fought today if there was no profit in it? Ask yourself. What? Well, they can't keep the land either. Right? So, so in our world, the profit's not. In, in their world, the land could be seen as profit, but in our world, the the land, you know, land isn't as much profit as, you know, productive assets. But I'll, I'll say John Walton has a really a good book on the band because it's such a challenging thing, and you're really good at raising up the biggest challenge of all. Yes. Okay. All right, so, anything else? Okay, that's okay, cough it out, man. I am with you all the way. We are, we are, we are, we are bonded brothers here today, right? I guarantee you mine's gonna sound worse than yours does. Patty has heard coughs coming out of me that has never been heard by any other human on the planet. Yeah, there's something going on. Anyway, so here's where we are. Saul is dead. David has been made king of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. So Saul has several sons, including Jonathan, who died. One son of Saul's named Ishbosheth is on the throne, supported by whom? By Abner who was Saul's chief commander. And you remember perhaps that Abner um, was chased by um, Joab and Asahel and Abishai and the young, the young man of the three of them, it was Asahel 
who would not relent in his chasing down of Abner, despite Abner's pleading to him to stop. I, I think he didn't want to, to kill the young man. But Asahel would not stop. And in the end, Abner does kill Asahel. And it seems like the kingdom, the tribe of Judah, and the other tribes, which are now, let me move forward a slide. This map sort of, sort of illustrates this. The, the tribe of Judah in the south and the other tribes, which are north of the tribe of Judah, are on the verge of all-out civil war. All-out, not civil war, civil war. <laughs> Silverware? Okay, well, there you go. It's a map, yes. So hope, and you know, my, I bring the maps and I know some of you are better positioned to see them than others, but I hope that you have a Bible that has some maps in the back. So you can sort of see some of this in your own Bible. The maps are essential. Otherwise, this just turns into a series of little semi-interesting stories, but the geography matters in this a great deal. So there's, it seems that there's just about to break out into all-out civil war when Abner challenges Joab, whose brother Abner has just killed, to blow the horn and bring the end to the fighting. And Joab does. And the fighting comes to an end. Is that a pretty good summary of chapter 2, as you recall? Yeah, I think so. And then when chapter 3 opens, it opens simply with a statement of various sons born to David. Okay? And I, last week, told you to highlight Amnon and Absalom. They will be key figures later down the road in the book of 2 Samuel. Amnon and Absalom. They are half-brothers. They have different mothers, which is something you can see from the listing in chapter 3, and all of that will come to play. But they are both sons of David. And you, you might know, remember from high school English or college English, that William Faulkner wrote a famous novel, Absalom, O Absalom. The quote comes from 2 Samuel. Okay? So, Thank you for the elderberry, Susan. It's calming. I feel so calm. <laughs> to your throat. Oh, my throat. Oh. Okay, so let's just plunge in. Chapter 3, verse 6. During the war between the house of Saul, that was, you know, this house business means your ancestral line. It's like, okay, so... We just, we have a, there's a new king of England, right? Charles. He's from the house of? Windsor. Windsor. Goes way back in history. There's the house of Saul. There's the house of David. I live in the house of Patty. <laughs> okay? During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Abner is a mover and a shaker. He's a strategist. He's a serious guy. He's a big-time player. 
<coughs> now, Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Okay, so let's talk about concubines. In the ancient Near East, that's what we're talking about here. The customs in the ancient Near East, including for the Israelites, were that kings had harems. We call them harems now. They had wives and they had concubines or second wives. Now, how most of this is assembled is because of treaties and agreements. You know, kind of like if you ever read any books of how the world used to work, that would be marriages between kingdoms and the kings would need sons. Read the stories of Henry VIII. That's how we ended up with so many wives. He needed an heir and he ended up wanting to create treaties with other, with other kings and their kingdoms and the same, the same way here. And so these harems would consist of women who were seen as the first wives and a, typically a large number of second wives, also called concubines. They weren't there principally to be like sex slaves to the king. It was, you, if you see it that way, you'll miss the whole political part of this and, and how these things come to be. For some of these women, this is the only life that they have once they enter the harem. They have no life apart from the life within the harem. And Rizpah is a concubine. Um, obviously, from what's happening, maybe a favored one, right, um, of, of Saul's. And Saul is dead. So, without even reading on, what might be a reason that Ishbosheth would say to Abner, why would Abner sleep with, with Rizpah? Well, if not an heir, Don, to establish himself as the most powerful person in Saul's household. It's sort of like he's going to drive Saul's favorite car. I know that's kind of crass, but there you go. That's how it kind of is. Now, women were um, lots of times sort of seen as property. I've told you many times, not a woman in this room wants to go back and live in this world. You do not. No matter what kind of movies it's romanticized in, if somebody comes offering you time travel, back to this world, just say no. So, so, so this, this is a power play by Abner. So Ishbosheth comes and he can, this is the confrontation with Abner saying, why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Look at the preceding verse. It tells you what, what Abner's doing. Right? He's strengthening his position in the house of Saul. Now, verse 8, Abner's response. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. 
Could he be innocent? Maybe. I doubt it, but maybe. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what Yahweh promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. That's the top to the bottom. Dan's way up there in the north, Beersheba's in the south. Abner's saying, look, you've insulted me. You've insulted me. It's this huge response. You've insulted me. And as a consequence, I'm going to turn everything over, everything that is Saul's and you think yours, over to David. Ishbosheth, verse 11, Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. So, I don't know what Abner's done with Rizpah, really. How could I really know that? All I know is, as a stratagem, it's worked. Because Abner has clearly further set himself up in superiority to Ishbosheth. Even though Ishbosheth is the new king. Now, you might say to me, if we were naive about how these things work, well, but Ishbosheth is king. Power is expressed in many ways, many, many ways. There are strong kings and there are weak kings. But Abner, no, he's not a king. He is strong. Verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So now I guess he's fed up with Ishbosheth. There has to be more than what just happened, but anyway, so now he sends a message to David, said, David, <coughs> I'm ready to turn over all the lands. You'll be the king of the whole thing. Good, said David. I will make an arrangement with you, but I demand, demand, I will demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Whoa, whoa. That's kind of out of left field there, isn't it? Michael. Remember who Michael is? Michael was Saul's daughter who was just head over heels for David and helped him escape and... <coughs> he wants her back. Now, let me ask you, why does he want her back? She will cement his claims to the house of Saul. You've got to put on your ancient world, medieval world, maybe 2023, I don't know, you know, hat about how all these things work. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Well, this does pose a bit of a problem. Because Michael's, uh, Michael, the girl's already, been, she, I mean the woman, she's already been married off. 
After David disappeared, remember, yeah. Michael gave her in, I mean, Saul gave her in marriage to a guy named Paltiel. So, well, now David wants her. See, does any, is anybody asking her <laughs> what she wants? No. <clears throat> Nobody's asking her what she wants. So, then verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of what? Do you remember? Yep. <laughs> How could you forget? A hundred Philistine foreskins. Yikes. Talk about proof of death. Yeah, so I guess, you know, he certainly feels like he earned her. She's his. But that's not the key point here. The key point is he wants to strengthen his claim on the house of Saul. How Were they married any length of time? No. Once she helps him escape, remember she, she took this idol and she put it in bed and covered it up so it looked like he was in bed, but he wasn't. That's the last time he saw her, when he was still basically a kid, almost, running off, running away from Saul. So, verse 15, Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away. See the, see the verbs? Had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. <laughs> so he went. It's a, it's a sad, poignant, pathetic story. Michael, I think, I'm willing to infer from this that Michael finds a measure of happiness with Paltiel and now she's being ripped out of that and I will tell you what what hap what's coming she is a woman filled with a lot of bitterness a lot of bitterness and we will see that in the chapters ahead okay thoughts or questions reflections anything y'all want to add at this point so, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel. These are the <coughs> ten northern tribes, not Judah. The elders of those tribes. And said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For Yahweh promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. So Abner goes to the elders and appeals and says, look to them, the time has come. You've wanted David, God picked David, it's time. Now Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in, the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron, Hebron in the south, right there. Mom will longer I get out of the way, but yes, I can. Okay. 
Look at this. Here we go. This is okay. I'm going to try very hard not to take anyone's eye out with this. Okay, so, right? So these are the 10 northern tribes. Just because they occupy the lands in the north, the lands were all basically allocated by, <coughs> <coughs> by God when they first entered the Promised Land. This is the tribe of Judah in the south. The tribe of Benjamin is also really in the south. It's such a tiny, tiny little tribe that it, it, it just really ends up being sort of sucked up into and, and, and part of uh, Judah. But they, they are their own tribe. This is Hebron, big, big central point, big meeting point. There's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still not Israelite. It still belongs to the um, Jebusites. Okay, And earlier, um, Abner was talking about taking all of this and giving it to David. He said from Dan, which is up here in the north, that's the northernmost tribe, all the way down to Beersheba, right? And turning it over, getting all of it behind David. Cool. Then he went to, he so Abner went to talk to the Benjamites. He went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him, a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Boom, 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 done deal. Going to go, go out, put this all together, make it happen. Boom. Right? Sweet. Just then, David's men and Joab, Joab is an important commander in David's army, returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. So Abner's gone, Joab and his raiding party comes back, right? When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. Now, presumably, that's all he knows. That's all it says he knows. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. He's a bad, 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 bad guy. What is Joab's biggest beef with Abner? (coughs) 
Well, Joab's the biggest beef with, Ad, with Abner is that Abner killed Joab's brother, Asahel. It was Joab's brother, Asahel, who was run, running down Abner and wouldn't give up like the little dog that sadly caught the garbage truck and did not survive. That's Asahel. So, 26, Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. Just a place. But David didn't know it. Okay, so Joab has gone behind David's back and sent messengers after Abner. David doesn't know anything about this. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, which David knows nothing about. Joab took him aside into an inner chamber, as if to speak with him privately, and there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. So, Joab wanted revenge, and he got his revenge. He went behind David's back, developed a ploy, deceived Abner into returning, <coughs> deceived Abner into getting him alone, and then he kills him. And, wow. Um, Andy was asking about so much killing and blood, blood guilt, blood death, blood revenge. It is just, it's just, the, it's just our way. It is just our way. And it isn't good. And it's not going to be good here. Um, so, verse 28. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before Yahweh concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May the blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. And then he's going to pronounce a curse. Kind of like from the movies or something. With, may Joab's family never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. So David curses, pronounces a curse, basically, on Joab's family, and, a, and a step proclaims his own innocence. Is David innocent in this? I think so. What do you think? He didn't know that Joab sent a message up. Um, if anything, Abner was a little bit too trusting himself. Right? I don't know what the message he got from Joab said. I don't know what Joab said to him when he got there. <coughs> Joab might have gone on at some length about how they've got to put that behind them all to get Abner alone so he could kill him. But clearly, David is not happy. 
And I think, I think it is not just because of what this probably does, may do to the strategy that Abner is running to bring the tribes back together under David's kingship, but just because it's just so wrong. It's a murder. It's a murder. Just a plain, old-fashioned murder. Like something you'd see on a good episode of Vera. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Some of you don't. Yeah, Patty and like we like those British crime mysteries. Vera's a good one. Been on for many, many years. Many, many episodes if you start it. And they all begin the same way. There's just a murder. Somebody's dead. In fact, the series has been on so long, you figure England's pretty well depopulated <laughs> at this point. But yeah, so this is a murder. No reason to put a better, put any other light on it. It's a murder. Verse 30. Parenthesis, Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle at Gibeon. That's just reminding, the, that's the writer reminding you of what underlies this murder of Abner. Verse 31, Then David said to Joab, and all the people said to him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloths and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. The, 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 this is the burial. He's gonna, Abner's being handled with honor. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before the wicked. Because it is only by deception and lying that Joab was able to kill Abner. Then they all came and they urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath, saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. So he is fasting in his mourning and his grief over Abner. I imagine, I like to imagine sometimes, I imagine that he is both saddened by the death of Abner, who earlier prevailed upon Joab to put an end to the fighting that could have led to outright civil war. Um, it seemed that he and Abner had come to a sound way to put the tribes back together under David's kingship. And I imagine he mourns for Abner because he's fearful about what lies ahead. All the people, verse 36, all the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. 
So the writer of this book, 2 Samuel, the book of Samuel, because remember it's all really one book, wants you to understand clearly that David's hands are clean with respect to the murder of Samuel. He will have other things to stand account for, but not this. He did not do this. Who did this? Who murdered Abner? Joab. Joab. I mean, I'm just pressing you for names because all these names, it mean, this is what... This is what makes the stories so well told. That's why you're going to need to remember the names Abnon and Absalom, the two sons of David and stuff going. Joab. Joab is the one who murdered Abner. Well, then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a commander and a great man has fallen, a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. He fears Joab and Abishai. Joab's demonstrated what he's willing to do. David then closes with, May Yahweh repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. So, okay, thoughts, questions? Meanwhile, there's Ishbosheth. Well, if nothing, okay, let's press on, chapter 4. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. And all Israel, all those northern tribes up there, became alarmed. Abner was the strong one. He was the top dog. He was the strategist. He was, he was the backbone and the spine that Ishbosheth lacked. Now Saul's son, Ishbosheth, had two men who were leaders of raiding bands, raiding parties. They got to raid and bring back plunder and, I don't know, work out their aggression and testosterone or something. One was named Baana and the other Rechab. They were sons of Rimen, the Berathite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitaim and have resided there as foreigners to this day. There'll be a test on that afterwards, okay? <laughs> now, now we get a parenthesis where the writer is just going to tell you something that's going to seem, well, why am I being told this? Because it's, going to, it's about the past, but it's going to matter down the road. And the translators, at least in the NIV, put it in parentheses, which is, I think, probably helpful. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So the little boy <coughs> is crippled, lame in both feet. He's five years old when his father and his grandfather die in the battle at Gibeon. His nurse picked him up and they fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled, further disabled. 
His name was Mephibosheth. So you know because you're told this that you're going to need to remember the name Mephibosheth. And I think maybe they give it to you now so you have time to practice. <laughs> Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. I've preached sermons on Mephibosheth before. So, why are they fleeing? Because father and grandfather have been killed in battle. Because this is back at home now. This is back like in the palace. Why are they fleeing? <coughs> They're worried they will be killed. The typical practice is, um, you know, when the house, if, like the house of Saul falls, that all the members of Saul's household are going to be, are to be killed and stuff. So you don't have any rivals, no claimants to the throne. All that, it's very, it's very brutal. It's, it, it, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't really have good ways of getting rid of bad kings and the rest. That's why there were so many assassinations and poisonings and betrayals. It's why when you read the book, the stories of the Caesars, it's just one big soap opera. They didn't have elections and so forth like we do now when we can presumably get somebody out of office. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anything? Anybody? Now, Rechab and Baana, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. Oh, it's so hot. They're doing this without air conditioning. And the heat's not letting up. There's a big heat dome over, you know, over the land. And it's hot and hot. So they went to the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat. And they stabbed Ishbosheth in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Baana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. They took it with them. They traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Now, why do they do this? What do they think they've done? Oh, look, David, look what we did. For you. We have cleared the path. We went in and took care of your problem. Mishbosheth was your problem. He was the son of Saul who was on the throne. We took care of him. We snuck in there and we killed him. And you want proof? We have his head. Interesting though, you know, unless. David had met Ishbosheth. He would have no idea what he'd look like. There's no photos. No, no, no TV. What? A face ID. Yes, yes. So they could open up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really. But anyway, they brought his head back. This is it, man. 
Ishbosheth is dead. Whoo, didn't we do a great thing for you, David? Oh man, don't you love us, David? They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is this head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. This day, Yahweh has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Don't you love when people take God's name and apply it to their own actions? You know, they took this all into their own hands. They came up with this plan. They carried it off. They killed the guy. And they, oh, look what God has done for you. Don't ever fall into that trap with people. Nobody should, nobody should speak for God. I have enough trouble understanding what God is and is not doing in my own little life, much less in somebody else's or in the larger world. That's why my, my shorthand for figuring out what God does and doesn't do is this. Maybe this will be helpful to you. When, when something good happens in my life, <coughs> God did it. When something bad happens in my life, such as this cough, God didn't do it. I did it, somebody did it, but not God. So God did, God does the things in my life that work well. And that works pretty well for me because you see God is good. You could never take an evil act, an act that is any way destructive of the goodness in this world and lay it at God's feet. People in the Bible do that. They take destructive acts and they lay them at God's feet and they said, God told me to do this. And no, God will never call you to commit an evil act. God will never call you to do something that is destructive of the very goodness that God has created in this world. Okay? He was. God was with David when David cut Goliath's head off. So, was that, a, was that an evil act? It was, a, it was an act in combat, right? between these two um, armies, between the Israelites and the Philistines. You know, it's, it's why you have to be careful what you call evil, right? Some people would say that there's evil in that act, or it's the lesser of two evils, or... But I think we have to be careful about that because The defeat of Goliath by David gave victory to God's people. And it's, of course, those people whom God has chosen that he's going to save the world through. So they got to make it. But secondly, it probably saved a lot of lives because when champions would fight, okay, it would often... Um, replace the death of lots and lots of, of people. But 
you know, it's, um, uh, you know, one, what, what, it's, it's like, it surprises people to learn that Augustine grounded his theory of just war until the time of Augustine, about 400 years after Jesus, the Christians never had to worry about what is war just or not because they didn't have enough power to do anything. But once Constantine becomes a Christian, then the Christians begin to wrestle with these questions. And Augustine's theory of just war is grounded in what? Love of neighbor. What do you do when one neighbor is beating the crap out of the other? What is the right thing to do? What is the virtuous thing to do? Take the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know how the parable works, right? The guy comes upon this body. He's living, but he's almost dead. And, and after the priest has passed him by and stuff, but the, but the Samaritan helps him. What if the Samaritan came upon this altercation just as it was starting, and had the means to stop it, even at risk of death or injury to himself or to the attackers. Would there be virtue in stopping it? Or should he just go find a hill and sit on it and wait to see if the guy survives? What do you do when one neighbor is killing another? Where, what kind of virtuous act is there in Stopping that? A crazed killer has a knife at the head of a child and the sniper takes out the killer. Is that, is that, the, is that the lesser of two evils? Or is that a virtuous act by the sniper? What, how, what is it? So those are things really worth arguing about a lot. <coughs> and Christians have for a very long time and we come to different places sometimes about it. For me, we live in a world filled with death and destruction um, and murder, and it's very sad. And it, but it needs to be constrained. There needs to be constraints to try to hold it, to try to hold it in control. That's the right thing to do. Um, even if that entails even if that entails violence. But there are Christians who would say, Richard Hayes is one who says, no, you can't use violence in the, in the defense of justice. It's just, it's just not what Jesus taught. But I, I don't think he's right about that. Yes? On that note of death, the harvest is their grandparents again. Wow. Great grandparents. Wow. How exciting. Where's the. Here in town? No. Fayetteville. Okay. So, y'all, great grandparents yet? Twice. It's the second one. Our son has four girls. Now he has two grandsons. So, your son has grandsons. So, you are great grandparents. Yes. Good for you. Wow, y'all look great. 
they're up in Arkansas, and so they're hillbillies, and I don't know what, what I can't remember what they named him, the first name. Yes. But his middle name is Rex. It's is Jasper. Which is Jasper Rex. Rex? Rex. King. King. You got it. Okay, cool. Congratulations. That's awesome. Birth and death. It's the way of life, isn't it? Birth and death. All these things we go through. Now, to go back to this story here, what, what do we have on display here? Is this like the Good Samaritan? Is this like the sniper? What? This is just a murder. Right? That's what Joab did. Joab just murdered Abner. He lied to him and, 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 and got him into a place where, alone where jo Joab could just flat out murder the man. And what do these two yahoos do? They sneak into the king's house and they kill him while he's taking his noonday rest, taking advantage of the man who can't deal with the heat. That would be me. Yes. Right. But the other family says, that's great. So how do we, okay, if because I'm familiar with the expression and the sentiment, evil is in the eye of the beholder. So how can we develop eyes that see right and wrong, good and evil, more as God sees it? See, part of being of growing as a Christian and being transformed is coming to see the world through God's eyes so that the way we see good or the destruction of the good which is what evil is we see it through God's eyes and it begins to get us out of well it's just all through the eyes of who's ever looking at it because for 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 Christians really for all people God is the one who teaches us what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is not. And it's not always straightforward. That's why we, that's why we, that's why we work on this as, as a community and as friends. And that's why, blessedly, in the end, you know, Jesus is there for us when we make poor judgments about that. So I can, you know, there are, and T. Wright and Richard Hayes, two of my favorite scholars, simply disagree about the use of violence in defense of justice. <coughs> um, I guess maybe I'll find out someday which of them got it right. But at least they talk about it. You know, they understand what the questions are. So, very good. Well, when, when our soldiers landed at D-Day to fight evil, were they justified? Sure, sure, it's like D-Day. Is, is D-Day, the, the, the way it typically phrases, well, you know, it's, all, it's the lesser of two evils. And I would submit, no, it's not the lesser of two evils. It's a virtuous act to try to rescue Europe with 
without even understanding yet exactly what you were going to find when you went to the depths of Europe. But, you know, and you could say, well, the Germans wouldn't see it that way. But there were many who did. And one of them, one of the most famous ones, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who paid with his life because he was very patriotic until he just couldn't, couldn't be anymore <coughs> and participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler and was hung for it. Well, and maybe a lot of Japanese lives, you know, and people, you know, I have my opinion about that, that too. So it's, um, all of these things can create what are called moral dilemmas. The question is, what is the proper way to try to solve these moral dilemmas? You have to begin with God. You have to begin with God and you have to begin with Scripture and because otherwise we're like the last verse in the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That can't be the way. That's the way of anarchy. We've, human history's demonstrated that, and I'm a student of history. So, okay. So these two guys, um, they're wicked. Verse nine. Now David answered Rechab and his brother Baana, the sons of you know Rimon the the Berethite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. Remember? This guy came up and saying, yeah, I, I put Saul to death. True or not? I mean, it is true that he came and did that. Whether it was true or not that he put Saul to death, because it does say that Saul fell on his own sword, but, you know, I don't know. He brings the crown and the band, and he wants credit for it. He just wants credit for it. Look what I did for you, David. And, and David has him put to death. That was the reward I, David, gave him for his news. How much more? When wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, who's trying to survive the heat dome, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? Well, the answer, that's a rhetorical question. Verse 12. So David gave an order to his men and they killed him. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. So they tried to treat Ishbosheth's head with dignity and honor, but not the murderers. It was murder. And who else is a murderer? But is still around, still in the picture? Joab. He's a murderer. <laughs> but he is still in the picture. Okay? So what's the thing about hands and feet? Is that just a tradition that they did? So Sharon's asking me, they cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies. 
Desecrating a body is a way to dishonor it. And cutting off hands and feet is a way to dishonor it. Yeah, different cultures have different ways of dishonoring, you know, of desecrating bodies. Remember, that's what they, that's what Saul didn't want done to their, Saul and Jonathan, their bodies by the Philistines. That's why the men of Jabeth Gilead went and rescued, I mean, they knew they were rescuing not live people. They weren't rescuing Saul from the hands of, they were just, getting his body back because the body was going to be desecrated. So, you know, it's respect for bodies. Yeah, okay, so... Don's asking me, did they have a feeling of the afterlife? The answer to that is yes. For the Jews, the afterlife was referred to as Shalom. It was a gray, kind of shadowy place. Not horrible. Not pleasant. Akin to the Greek place called Hades. Okay, because God is up there, you and I are here, and the, and the dead are down there. And so if you look in the Psalms, there are various Psalms, about people being released, you know, from shalom and so forth, because as a way of shalom, shalom. What what is it? It's not shalom. That means that not shalom. What? Somebody help me. It's not shalom, Scott. Come on. Shield. Thank you. Yes. S H E O L. Thank you. Yes. 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 Isn't that so funny? How many times have I talked about Sheol? But in that moment, I couldn't come up with a name. You know what that's an expression of? Old age. Old age. It, and the heat. The heat and the old age. And I'm sick, and I'll take every excuse I have. Sheol. Sheol is the name for the Jews of that sort of shadowy place. For, no, nobody, nobody. You know, um, for the Greeks, it, it was called Hades, and and the people, after people died, they <coughs> they went to Hades, and they were called Shades, S H A D E S. And it's really part of the grounding of the Greek culture out of Homer, and and that's where people are. And for the Greeks, if you met, let's just say you thought you were walking on the beach one day and you met Achilles, right, the Greek hero, you would have met his shade, not actual Achilles because dead people stay dead and bodies stay dead, but you would have met his shade, maybe a little bit akin to a ghost, right? Um, so they have these ideas, I think because Deep in the human heart, there's a recognition that life does indeed extend past the grave. But it will take time, even for the Jews. At this time, that's the best they have. They will have to get much closer to the time of Jesus to begin putting together a doctrine, an understanding of resurrection. Right? Uh, Would you begin to see emerge in some non-biblical writings? 
extra biblical writings and in the book of Daniel as you begin to approach Jesus' day. And by Jesus' day, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is in full flower. And they bury people accordingly just so they can help God out a little bit by putting bones in a box and all that kind of thing. So, but here they are honoring Ishbosheth and they are dishonoring the two murderers. Right, and that's a mistake. It, let me tell you where it came from. It came from after Jesus really in full flower hundreds of years after um, with um, uh, Dante's Inferno, Milton's Paradise Lost, you end up with all of that Sheol, Hades stuff becoming the fires of hell. So it is why we don't say in the Apostles' Creed the phrase, he descended into hell, which I said as a kid. The reason we don't, and it's a good reason, <coughs> because for us pre-people in 2023, that means nothing other than this ever-burning place of punishment and you're instantly asking, well, why does Jesus go there? What is that all about? And it wasn't. It just, when the Apostles' Creed was written, it merely went, meant the place where dead people go, period, paragraph. So that's Hades and Sheol. Now, it, it was changing a bit in Jesus' day, particularly among the Greeks, but it's really later. Um, it's sometimes on Sunday, I need to do a little series on uh, Dante's Inferno and Milton's Paradise Lost. So many of the stuff that we grow up, that we have in our heads as Christians about the way things are, the stuff we're taught in church and elsewhere, they come from there a lot more than they come from the Bible. And um, it just becomes part of this cultural Christianity, almost a folk religion. As, as a lot of things are incorporated into Christianity that you, you really can't find much warrant in the Bible itself. So anyway, we'll see. Good question. Glad you asked that because, yeah, that's how it is. So when we come together next week, first of all, I'm going to be completely over this. <laughs> Ishbosheth is dead. And we will make more progress on installing David as what? King. King over all Israel, over all the tribes. Because there are three kings of the united Israel. The first is Saul, the second is David, and the third is Solomon. After Solomon dies, the civil war breaks out in full... <coughs> In full flower, in full flower, right? Full flower, and um, but in any event, that's all in the book of Kings, not Samuel. <coughs> Anything else before I close us in prayer? Thank you for putting up with me today. 
Sorry if the cough was terrible. I imagine for the streamers it was probably, they probably hit their mute button 27 times today. But in any event, y'all are very kind. <sighs> Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be yours. Help us to, help us to grow in our understanding of how you see this world, of how you see right from wrong, good from evil. Help us to see this world through your eyes evermore and and less so the eyes that we were born with and grew up with and, and, and we're shaped by the world around us. We want, we want to see this world and live in this world as we know that you would hope we would. There are a lot of moral dilemmas in this world, but guide us as we grow in wisdom. In wisdom. Your way, not the world's way. 